welcome. It really is a privilege to be here with you this morning and to be able to, to open uh, the, the book with you. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we'll be in chapter 1 again. And this morning we're going to be uh, working through verses 2 through 8. And you might say, well, this is a little bit of a faster pace and speed than last week. And, and it'll, it will, we'll speed up and then we'll slow down uh, throughout the next year. I want to tell you something, though. The, the room quickly becomes unsettled as the herald announces this statement. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Don't turn now. There's nobody coming in the back door. He's not here. At that moment, the chamber erupts with applause. This is a moment that those in the audience in, in, in attendance that they've been waiting for for some time now. Their appearance even demonstrates that an, an acute attention to detail prompted by their desire to show respect for the position and admiration of even of his character. Everyone's on their feet. Once the chamber settles down from the president's arrival, the speaker officially presents the president of the United States to the joint session of Congress. The president then delivers uh, his State of the Union speech from the podium at the front of the, the House chamber while both the speaker and the vice president sit uh, at the speaker's desk behind the president. That moment has been taking place regularly every year for over 200 years. Speaker, the president of the United States, this herald, this warning, this announcement of good news is offered. And it's not uncommon for us to see uh, someone announced. Maybe, it, maybe it's the arrival of a baby girl. The ecstatic father busts out of the room and says, she's here. She's arrived to all those who wait with bated breath. Again, the entrance of the, United, of the President of the United States. Or maybe the return of a parent from work. She's home. Here in this passage, we see that the Son of God, the, the long-awaited Messiah, is announced. He will be announced. He has a forerunner. He has a herald. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. And so last week, we looked at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we broke down what the, the nuances associated with each of these words, and we put them together and recognized that there had been a prophecy and the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ was anchored back in this prophecy. It wasn't this new thing that God was doing, this surprise ending or turn of events. This was foretold for thousands of years and waited for. So in Mark chapter two, verse eight, or Mark chapter one, verse two, all the way down to eight, we'll look this morning. Starting in verse two, it says, "As it is written in the in Isaiah the prophet." Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down 
and untie. He goes on to say, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, this is our prayer, that you truly would bless our time this morning, that we would see you, that we would see your love displayed on the cross, that we would see your wisdom displayed through prophecy given and prophecy fulfilled. And again, that your church would be encouraged and edified this morning, that we would grow into the image of you, Jesus, as a result of our time together this morning, Spirit, as you work in our lives. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to give you a highlight, just a high level, again, as we typically do, some of the high watermarks of this passage, some road signs along the way. And those three would be this, the prophecy, the fulfillment, and then the message. The prophecy, the fulfillment, and then the message. So the prophecy we'll look at in verses 2 and 3. The fulfillment of that prophecy we'll see in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then finally, we'll look at the message of that messenger, of that prophet, in verses 7 and 8. And then really, we'll zoom out a little bit and and end on a high-level point of view. The main thing that I, I believe that this passage has for you this morning, and by this passage I mean the, the very God of this world. What does he have for you this morning? I, I believe it's this. It's a question that's being asked, and that's, has your heart been prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Has your heart been prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Let that rest in. Let that, think, let that, let that really sink in as you think. Has your heart been prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Hopefully by the end of our time this morning, you'll be encouraged by that question. And if you're discouraged, you'll find and see hope this morning. So first, let's look at prophecy. The prophecy. In verse 2, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody that started kind of like this? It's so unbelievable. She, she said all that, and he was like, and, and they all just, but, but, I, but I, you ever just have a conversation that starts that way, maybe goes on that way, and you're like, who? are we talking about? Who did what? Who's, what did he say and who, who is he? Right? Sometimes with my daughters, I have to stop and say, what? Who, can you give me some context? Can we identify who the pronouns are? We got to pump the brakes, right? Maybe you can uh, relate some, some of you this morning. I won't say which gender, but, but maybe you can relate. But pronouns are important to us. As we think of that, we look at this passage, and we ask, who's, who's talking in this passage, and, and who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? Well, I'll say this. You, you, I would encourage you to even consider writing in your Bible. The I here, behold, I send my messenger. That I is God. That I is Yahweh. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Genesis. I. And who is the messenger? Who is he speaking of? He says, I send my messenger. Well, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. We'll see about, we'll understand a little bit more clearly about who, who, the, Messiah, or who the forerunner actually was. But that, that messenger is the forerunner. And then he goes on to say, your face. I, I send my messenger before your face. Who's the your face? That your face, it is referring to 
the Messiah himself. It's referring to the Son of God. And so it's, behold, God sends his messenger, the forerunner, before who? Who's he speaking to? Before the Messiah's face, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. I'll take away all the suspense. God is saying, I send John before your face, Jesus. This is the, this is, uh, helps to clarify if we know who we're talking about. Often we, we say that, that context is king, and, and, king and, it, and it is helpful, and, but not only is it helpful, but it's also imperative that, that we know context, that we understand it, so that we can really truly see what God is saying to us this morning. And here, Mark pulls back the curtain for us that aren't Jewish, and he allows us to see and to know what a first century Jew would see and know. What's interesting about this quote, this Old Testament quote that, that uh, Mark uses here, is that it's actually several quotes from the Old Testament that are melded together. And so when, when you think about it, he says that, the, that Isaiah says something. He's actually speaking of pro- several prophets in gen- or, in, that are melding their words together. So think of it not as an exact quote, but as a consolidation of a consolidated statement of prophecy regarding the Messiah. It was a well-known fact. Several of these, several well-known facts combined together. And so for years and years, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah. And they knew all the prophecies about him. And they argued and they studied and they, they wrestled together for the good of the people to find out what it is that the Lord is saying and so here, Mark, for us, has, has quoted some of that, and he's pieced together for our benefit several of those passages that, uh, that begin to color the backdrop of this morning's passage. And so, but while he's put them together, I want to actually break them apart for a moment and, and look at them in their initial context. And so first, I want to just take a look at the quote from Isaiah, the quote from Isaiah. The passage is actually in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse number 3 is what what we read this morning in verse 4. And here, God is offering comfort for the Jews because in the previous 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying against the, the people of Israel. He's prophesying against the Jews and he's saying that because you've turned your back on God, because you've sinned against Him, because you've rebelled against he, both God and His commandments, that God is going to send you away in exile. That he's going to allow you to be conquered by your enemies. That's a pretty sobering couple of chapters, 39. But then in 40, Isaiah rounds a, cor- a corner and he begins to offer hope. And he tells them that while the destruction is coming, while the exile is coming, that there is also good news, that there is also coming an end to the exile, and that they'll be returned to the land. And he reminds them in the second half of Isaiah that the prophet, the Messiah, is also coming. And he's saying, you've sinned against me, and you've turned your back on me, God says, you've rebelled against me, and I will punish you, and I'll discipline you. But then I will restore you, and I will send my messenger to you, and he will begin to prepare your heart. Chapter 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill will be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the wilderness, in the desert place, a voice cries out and he calls out, prepare the way of the Lord. So there's a prophecy here. There's a voice in this vision. There's a voice that's calling out to prepare the way of the Lord. We'll spend quite a bit of time this morning talking about what it is to prepare the way of the Lord. And why there's a herald, a voice crying out. But it brings this idea of a conquering king that's coming to a region. And ahead of this king that's coming into the land, he sends a herald that says, Be on your guard. Be ready because the king is coming. Get your things in order. Get your house in order. Get out your suit. Clean it up. Prepare a meal. Wash your face. The king is coming. Be ready. Be ready. So this is the, the passage that Mark is drawing our attention to, that he's using as a quote of a prophecy there in Isaiah. But there's another one there, and it's found in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. If you're taking notes, these are great things for you to go back and study sometime this week. Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. This is another Old Testament passage that Mark is quoting from. And this, in this passage, the people have they've already been through this exile. And Isaiah, he's prophesying it's going to take place, but in Malachi, it's already taken place. In the rearview mirror is a long period of time, the people of Israel exiled out of the land. So this is after the walls have been rebuilt there in Jerusalem. This is after the, the temple has been restored to some semblance of its former glory. Things are better now than they had been. And what takes place? They look to God there and they say, Where are you, God? Where is your Messiah? And yet these people, the, the, the children of Israel, are still living in sin. They're still rebellious towards the Lord. And this is where the prophet Malachi comes in. And he brings some indictments against the children of Israel. Here in chapter 3, again, he talks about the fact that he answers the question, rather, the children of Israel say, well, where are you, God? Where is justice in the land? There is no justice. There's no Messiah. Where, where is he? Is he coming? Are you going to be present with your people? Here we are. We, we're back in the land. We're, we're back from that exile. We've, we've got some semblance of normalcy back here in Jerusalem, but they still say, God, where are are you? We want to see justice. It's a dangerous thing, by the way, to ask God for justice, isn't it? But they do. And God answers that question and says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. He's sending his messenger. What will that messenger do? He will prepare the way before me. Again, let's Talk about pronouns here. Who is my messenger? My. This is referencing God. 
Messenger, who is this referencing? It's referencing the forerunner, the, the herald that will be coming. And who and when will, be, will he come? He will come before God himself. And what will he do? He will prepare the way. Remember, Mark is saying that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, this is the beginning of it. It finds its beginning not in Mark chapter 1, but it finds its beginning in the Old Testament. And the point of the Old Testament is the good news of Jesus Christ, not just in the New Testament, but the entirety of Scripture is about Jesus, about the redemption that he is working even presently. I send my messenger, chapter 3, verse 1 says, and he, the messenger, the forerunner, he will prepare the way before me. Before me. He answers them and says, I am coming. But before me, the messenger will come. And if we, if we were to jump to the next chapter, there in Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says there. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the children of, or the, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the, the people, they ask in this story, in the, in, the, in the unfolding there in Malachi, they say, where are you, God? And where is your justice? Where are you? Where is your justice? And, and God responds and he says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. I'll, I'll send you a prophet like Elijah, we could say. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers or the, or the, to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what do we see here? That the Lord's coming is dangerous because no one is ready. No one at that point in time is ready. And so God is saying, I'll send my prophet before and he will prepare the way. He will help to prepare the hearts of the people so that they can receive the Messiah. The context of Malachi is so important for us this morning as we look at Mark chapter 1. You see, the people were confused. They, they thought they were ready for the Messiah. They thought that, that justice would come and all the evildoers would be corrected and, and judged. And that's actually what is going to take place, but they themselves are in that group of evildoers. They that self are that, in that group of ones needing justice to be meted out against them. So Malachi says, You long for justice from the Lord? You doubt that he's even coming, but he is coming, and listen, you are not ready. And he warns of a one that will come and warn and offer a call to repent. And that's the call that we received this morning, the call that God is coming. The Messiah, God incarnate, will be here in the flesh. In his grace, he'll send a messenger, he'll send a herald, we must be ready. The book of Malachi ends, and there are 400 years of silence. 400 years pass by where the children of Israel do not hear a word from the Lord, and there's no prophet. 
until Mark chapter 1. And so the question is being asked, who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah's messenger for 400 years, wrestling, kicking in this around, meeting in synagogues, late after, after school and after work, wrestling with these questions? Who is he? Have you heard of him? Have you seen him? This is what the, 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 the disciples even, many of them, were looking for. Have you, have you found the Messiah? No, I still haven't found him. Are you looking? I'm still looking for him. And that's why when they come one to the other, they say, come with me, Philip to Nathaniel. We've found the Messiah. We were looking for him, and we found him, as we looked at in, in the book of Matthew. So there's this prophecy, and it's anchored back in Exodus, Genesis, Isaiah, and Malachi, and many other passages. And all this information about the coming Messiah, and now the, the messenger that will come before him, and then there's 400 years of silence. And one of Mark's Agendas, as he begins, is to let us know not only who is the Messiah, but who is the messenger. Which, by the way, the messenger comes before the Messiah. And so one of the ways that we can know that we have found the Messiah is if we find the proper and true messenger. Because he, what does Malachi say? He comes before. He prepares the way for the Lord, as Isaiah says. And so in verse 4, we begin to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. The fulfillment. Look at verse 4. It says, John appeared. In other words, enter John. Mark says, all this information, he points back to all of these things that the Jews would have been known, uh, known and looking for, and he says, now, those things are true. Let me tell you about a man by the name of John. Many call him John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Look at verse 4. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to scoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark is pointing us to the right man. He says, this is what Isaiah wrote about, and now here's my man, John. You need to know about him. And as he says, he's trying to help us to draw conclusions and correlations between the prophecy and the fulfillment, who is John the Baptist. And one of the things that we noticed right off the bat that I noticed, and I'm sure that you did too, is that John is in the right location. Look at verse 4. It says, in the wilderness. That's where John's at. Remember back to Isaiah chapter 40. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. John calls to them from the wilderness. And he calls to them in the wilderness. The wilderness stands in contrast to Jerusalem. It stands in contrast to the city and in contrast to the world's view and goals for your life. Mark very clearly, as early as possible, wants to draw a distinction and let us know that discipleship involves, true discipleship involves a withdrawal from the world. True discipleship involves a withdrawal from the world. It involves sacrifice. We sang this morning that Jesus is better than all of our comforts, than anything that we can experience 
Do you believe that? Well, you'll find out soon in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, we withdraw from the world and all of the, the gifts that we would receive in the world and all the comforts that we sacrifice there in the wilderness. And John is preaching to a crowd that gathers from Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so to come to John, you have to come down from Jerusalem, down from the high level, from the high mountaintop, down into the desert valley. Jerusalem sits at 2,474 feet above sea level. And where John is preaching is somewhere in and around 900 feet below sea level. This is the wilderness. This is the desert, just north of the Dead Sea. I don't need to paint a picture. It's called the Dead Sea for a reason. It is the wilderness. That's almost 3,500 feet difference in elevation, almost, give or take. And this is where John is calling them to. This is where John is preaching from. He's a fulfillment of the prophecy. And he's calling the people from prestigious places to unimpressive positions. From the high to the lowly. From the independence to dependence upon God. From piety, from self-righteousness to judgment. And from affluence to brokenness. He's calling them and there is a vast difference between the two. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. That the messenger, the Messiah, the forerunner would Preach this message in the wilderness, calling those who would repent to that place. So Mark wants us to see John. He's a candidate. He's in the running. He's in the right location. But he doesn't just want us to see that. He wants us to see the message. Look at verse 4. What is John doing? He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Repentance. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. What is that? It's the right message. It's the right location and it's also the right message. He's supposed to be preaching a message, as, I, as Malachi chapter 5 says, or 4 rather, verse 5, a message of turning, a message of repentance, according to Malachi chapter 4. This is what he's preaching. We see it right now. What's happening? The, the Jews, what are they doing? They're coming out of Jerusalem. They're coming out of the surrounding areas. They're coming down to the wilderness, to where John is. And they're hearing this message, this message of repentance, this message of turning. More about repentance here in just a moment, but it's the right message. It's the right location. It's the right message. And listen, it's the right results. It's not just a message that falls on deaf ears, but it is a a message with results. It's the right results. That's what was said of the forerunner, that there would be results. But in verse 5, it says, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. And what were they doing? They were just coming out and listening and scoffing, though many did. There were many that repented, many that were baptized, many that confessed their sins. Repentance wasn't just heard, but repentance was had. So they're in the right location here with John. He is. He's saying the right things, and he's seeing the right results. This is the prophecy that the forerunner would come, and he would turn the hearts of the people. While it is a bit hyperbolic, not all in Jerusalem, not all in Judea were coming to him. If you can imagine, when somebody comes to town and traffic is is getting a little bit thick, you might ask, hey, who's here? Right? You know it's busy in the mornings. You know it's busy around from 4 to 5 downtown. But it seems a little crazy to be busy at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. There's cars everywhere. 
You're saying, what is this? Maybe in a big city you see just, just car after car after car after car, thousands of cars all in a row, bumper to bumper, waiting to get someplace or leave someplace. You say, well, who's been here? It seems as though everybody is going. Everybody knows about it. And this is what Mark is saying, that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem were going out to see him. They all knew of him. This is the right result. And not only is it the right result, but it's also the right look. So he, John was definitely a stylish guy. It's interesting that all the other gospel writers, they, they tell us so much more about John. And in and, and other gospels, we hear about John's parents. We hear about the prophecy of how he'll be born. We, we hear about how he even meets Jesus before Jesus is born and before he is born. And he literally, John the Baptist, leaps in his mother's stomach when he's in the presence of the Messiah. That's a beautiful picture. And here, this is the only thing that we really see about John. The bare minimums, and then he's like, hey, by the way, he wore camel skin and he had a leather belt, because you were probably wondering. Well, in the 21st century, we don't really understand what that means. We might say, well, what is it? Is he just an interesting dude? Is he just a country boy? He's got some uh, locust uh, wings in between his teeth, and maybe he picks it out with a grain of, you know, a stem that he picked out of the field, and, you know, he's kind of a little bit itchy, a little bit dirty, probably got a beard, you know. There's something actually to it. You see, when, when, when John, or Mark, John Mark, when he tells us what John the Baptist is wearing, what he's doing is he's, he's actually helping us to identify what type of man he was, what his profession was. If I were to ask you, what, if, if, I, if you saw somebody this morning, or if I came this morning and you didn't know who I was and I was wearing uh, scrubs and a lab coat with a stethoscope wrapped around my neck, who would you think? I'm dressed up like somebody. Who am I dressed up like? I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor if, I, if I'm dressed that way. If I come in with a... With a, with a uniform on, and I've got a really slick uh, hat, and I've got a, a, a firearm on my side and some handcuffs on this side. What would you think I am? Badge on my chest? I'm a law enforcement officer. I'm a policeman. If I come in this morning and I'm wearing a suit, what would you think I'm wearing? Or what I am? Say, pastor. I was going to say pastor. <laughs> if I come in this morning wearing turnout gear, and I've got a red axe and a, and a large-brimmed hat, what would you think? Well, you'd think he's a, he's a fireman. Politicians, what do they wear? They, re- they wear the red power tie, right? That's what they wear. And you know who they are. You know most professions by the way that they dress. And this is the truth about John the Baptist. And so he's, he has the right look. Well, what look is he? What, what look is he trying to go for? The idea is this, that everybody knew in those days that prophets wore hairy clothing. They wore animal clothes, skins, and a leather belt. So how do you know that? How do, how do, how do you know? Well, let me, let, me, let me unpack this. Well, first, this is why Jesus warns of false teachers. He says, who come in what? They come in sheep's clothing. Well, if you're like me as a kid, I'm thinking, okay, I get this picture of a wolf that, or a, that, that, that finds a, a stray sheep, and he, and he skins that sheep alive, and he, he puts it over his head, and he just kind of sneaks into the field, hoping that, you know, like Wile E. Coyote, that nobody will notice. And that's actually not what Jesus is saying. He's saying they will don the outfit of a prophet. That they'll begin to look like a prophet. In every way, they'll talk like a prophet. They'll look like a prophet. You'll think, if you didn't know any better, that that was a prophet. Jesus is saying, be careful, because although they wear the prophet's garb, they are not a prophet. They are a false prophet. And so there's a warning. 
In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, maybe, maybe Elijah, the Tishbite, maybe he kind of starts this whole uh, idea of wearing the hairy clothing and a leather belt. Because in first, or 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it says, he, speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So make no mistake. When Mark tells us what John is wearing, he's saying he is a prophet and he's a true prophet. Even Malachi told us he will be coming as Elijah. He will be Elijah-esque. Same dress, same style, same message. Prophet of God, truth. And so he's in the right location. He's, he's saying the right things. He's got the right message. He's got the right results. He's got the right clothing. And listen to this. He's even got the right timing. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. John the Baptist, speaking of the Messiah, says, After me comes. After me comes the Messiah. After me comes one that I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. Again, in ancient times, a king's envoy would travel on ahead of him. He would have heralds that would go out before him, making sure that the roads were safe, that there weren't going to be robbers and bandits in the way, and that it wouldn't be a disgrace, and that those that were waiting by the way, that lived on the road even, would be prepared. They could get their house in order. They could clean things up. Ever had a, a guest show up randomly, and you're just embarrassed? You are who you are. But had you known the pastor was coming over, he would have got things in order. And so it's nice to have a forerunner. And John says, I'm the forerunner. I'm coming before. I'm going to let them know the Messiah is coming. There we all were. We were sitting, sitting around acting like we had nothing to do, and like we owned the place. The world revolved around us. It was our oyster. But then it happened. One of us heard the sound, the ominous sound. And they looked out the window, and they saw her car. Mom was home. How could this be possible? It seems as if she had just left a few moments ago, but now she has returned. And when she left, she had given us a list. Each of us were to do our own tasks, and now we were in trouble. We had done none of them. And so quick as a flash, what did we do? We jumped on our feet, and with the television off now, and tools in hand, it would only take moments for her to get from the car to the porch, but that was still precious time that we could mark some of the things off the list and be ready and be prepared for her arrival. And so violent scrubbing, haphazard sweeping, lightning dusting, we were late, but we were preparing the way. We knew she was coming. Maybe you can re relate to that. You know that feeling. It's happening. I fell asleep. I wasn't prepared. I need to have my homework done. I need to get this assignment done. I need to get these reports finished for work. Whatever it is, you'd like to have that warning. You'd like to have that announcement. This is what John was for Jesus. This is what John was for the Messiah. He was letting us know that the Messiah was coming. And even now, he was here. And that we were to be prepared. And so throughout the Old Testament, specifically again in Isaiah and Malachi, Mark is pointing us to the fact that John was the forerunner, that he would come before the Messiah. And so again, speaking of John, is he a fulfillment of prophecy? Right timing. Here he's come before Jesus. He's come onto the scene before Jesus. And he has prepared the way. And lastly, and this is a bit obscure, but I want to draw your attention to it, is the fact that John had the right disposition he had the right disposition. Look at verse number 7. 
John's not arguing for who's the best or who's the toughest or who's on top. In verse 7, he comes right out and he says, he is mightier than I. He says, he's far more worthy than I am. In fact, I'm not even worthy to, to touch his sandal, which is the job of the lowest of the low in the household. The lowest servant would be the one that would remove the sandals. And John, the last Old Testament prophet, you might say, well, Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet. No, fun fact, John is the last Old Testament prophet. Divinely ordained to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the culmination of Old Testament history and prophecy. John the Baptist. And what does Jesus say about him? He labels him as the greatest man who had lived until that time. He says there's none born greater than John, Jesus says of, of John. And yet even John looks to Jesus and he knows his place. He knows the Messiah, and what does he say? I'm not worthy to touch his sandal. I'm not worthy to touch his sandal. And so, John, he has the right disposition. He has the right view of himself, the right view of God, the right view of the Messiah. Let me mention this. No, nobody likes a prideful person, right? It grates on us. If you're in the same cubicle area as one that's prideful, or if maybe they're in your life group or something like that, it just like grates on you sometimes. And, uh, but we have to be honest. When you're the best, it's, it's difficult to not feel prideful, isn't it? When you are the cream of the crop. Now, some of you guys are like, I can't relate. Others of you are like, yes, the struggle is real. You know it. When you are the best, maybe you're the best ping pong player. Maybe you're the strongest or smartest in your class, or you can run the fastest. And every day as you race out on the playground, you find out, I still am the smartest. I'm still the strongest. You're the, it feeds your ego, doesn't it? When you're the best at something. But not John. What does John do? He's, he doesn't become a prideful person. Jesus saying, nobody's born greater of woman than John. If John doesn't let it go to his head. How's that? Well, he keeps his eyes on Jesus. He keeps his eyes on Jesus. He, he keeps his eye on the word of God. And he doesn't think little of himself. He thinks of himself less. He doesn't try to pretend like he's not the last Old Testament prophet. Did you notice that? He is the last Old Testament prophet. He doesn't try to pretend like he's not the messenger of the Lord. Oh, well, who knows? I mean, I, I may be, I may not be, I don't know. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is he's elevating Christ. He's elevating others above himself, chiefly Christ. And I think this is a great place for us to park and just to consider. John has the correct disposition. As a servant, as a messenger of God, he thinks less of himself and more of others. He thinks less of himself and more of Christ. And this is repentance. Isn't it fitting that John be preaching a message of repentance? And again, we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But John is preaching a message of repentance. And it's so beautiful because he is a man who has repented. And many flock to him and they repent as he preaches. Why? Here's why. I want to ask you this question. We'll, we'll reshape the, the answer to that. Is it possible that we see so little repentance in those to whom we preach because maybe to those, to those whom we preach, they see so little repentance in us? Is, is it possible that our message is not received, our message of repent is not received is because people just see pride and arrogance in us? 
It's true of Christians that we will be rejected, that our message will be scoffed at. But may it never be that it is rejected or scoffed at because of our pride and lack of repentance. But may we be a people who repent. And as we preach, others who we preach to see that repentance. And it draws them to do the same. And that it would draw them to do the same. If we want to be used by God, we have to empty ourselves of pride and selfish ambition and to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus did. This is what John did. The Bible is just full of stories of men and women who, though they may have been little in the eyes of men or great either way, kept their eyes on God. They kept their eyes on Jesus. Let me say this too. Jesus has no interest in using you to serve him if you desire to use him to serve you. That might have been confusing. I'll say it again slower. Jesus has no interest in using you to serve him if you desire to use him to serve you. You see, John had a a position of, of power amongst the people. He could sway them left or right. He could have taken that position of honor that they had given to him and changed his camel skin and leather belt in for something else. He could have done that. What does he do? He doesn't do that. He uses the leverage, the platform that he's been given, not to serve himself, but to serve the Lord. There's a special message in there for Christians living in the U.S. in the 21st century. We've been given a place of, as it may seem, prominence and comfort. May we see the sin of using our blessings and our position to serve ourselves instead of to serve our master. This is not what we saw in the life of John. He had the right disposition. And so was John the fulfillment of the prophecy? Is he the forerunner? Mark says, absolutely. And any Jew in the first century reading this would have said, yes, we see it, obviously. And I believe that you see it again this morning as we look at Isaiah and Malachi. We see the prophecy fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. So Mark makes it clear for us. John is the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. John will point us to that Messiah. He will give us clarity and show us exactly who he is. And that messenger, he has a message. And so now that we know that John is the the forerunner of the Messiah, let's look at his message. We saw the prophecy. We saw the fulfillment of that prophecy in the life of John. And now let's look specifically at the message. It says that John appeared, in verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And what were they doing? They were confessing their sins. So what is John? He is the forerunner. He has a message from God. What is, he, what is his message that he's delivering? It's a message of baptism, of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sin. His message was baptism. To be baptized was to be immersed in water. This was a common practice among some of the Jews. And I want to give you some background. It's not associated directly with what John's doing. There were some, some folks, some Jews, a sect of Judaism that were living close by, even where, where, where John is baptizing, the River Jordan. That group of Jews was called the Essenes. They were a sect of Jews who had lived a, a very peculiar lifestyle. 
bit of a hermit streak to them. And they had a high reverence for the word of God and for prophecy and for scripture. In fact, they had a, this practice of washing before and after they would copy scripture. Maybe you've heard of uh, the, 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 the Qumran caves and the copies of Isaiah and other passages that were pulled out of a cave thousands of years old. This is, they were placed there by the Essenes. And they had this unique process that when they were copying Scripture, that they would, had such a high reverence for that they built these giant bathtubs. out in the, They look like swimming pools. I've been in one of them. You can walk down inside of it. It's like a shallow end and a deep end, and they would go in there and they would cleanse themselves. It was a ritual cleansing, and they would do it every day, several times a day. Is this what John was calling those there to do? To cleanse themselves on a daily basis? No. And there's another instance of, a, of immersion or baptism or in washing amongst the Jews. And it was a one-time washing where the Essenes would regularly be washing. This other instance of baptism, if it can be called that, was a washing of a Gentile proselyte. And it symbolized their embracing of the true faith of them entering into Judaism, moving from just a God-fearer to a Jew, as it were, brought in, grafted in. So if you were a Gentile and you came to faith, the principles and scriptures of Judaism, there would be a, a washing, as it were, a baptism of sorts. And I believe that this is actually very closely associated with John's baptism. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. John is preaching a, ba a, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sin. He's preaching a, a baptism of repentance. And so let's just set baptism to the side. Let's talk about repentance. In, in English, the, the focal point of repentance is, is the sorrow or even maybe contrition that a person feels or experiences because of their sin. They look at their sin in a disgust you repent of it. That's the English focus, but the, the sense in which it's being used here, this Greek, Greek term, is more of just thought, this feeling and disgust towards sin, but it's actually, another component is, of it is action. So changing the way that you think about something, feeling guilt against something that was at one point bringing you joy or pleasure, and now you're turning, you're changing your mind, and there's also a course of action. There's a change of action. And these two components are, are what's behind the Greek word here that, that we, we have for repentance. So there's a changing of way of somebody would think, and then there's an action that would follow up, that would demonstrate that thought. So many were there with John that were able to hear the message. And they were able to respond in repentance. But there were many who did not. There were many who did not repent and were not baptized. They didn't receive forgiveness of sins. They would have no part in John's baptism. You might say, why? For you or me, you might think, well, if, if you're not a religious person, especially, what's the big deal with just getting into some water? Why does it matter? Well, if you think about it, who is John preaching to there in the wilderness? Jerusalem and Judea have come to him. Who occupies Jerusalem and Judea? Who? It, the, occupies, yes, but 
I asked that wrong. Yes, they're being occupied by the Romans, but who lives there? The Jews. And so when he says that Jerusalem and Judea come out, he's not talking about Romans coming out to him necessarily. He's not talking about the Gentiles in the area. When he says that Jerusalem and Judea are coming, he's saying that the Jews were coming out to him and they were hearing this message. And some of them were repenting and being baptized and others wouldn't. But why would a Jew struggle to be baptized? Why would, why would they not want John to baptize them? Here's why. Because the baptism that John was asking them to take part in was to say, the fact that I am a son or daughter of Abraham means nothing. That I, just because I'm a Jew doesn't mean that I am a, I'm at peace with God. And that I am just as much estranged from God as that Gentile over there. That pagan over there, that Roman over here, they're just as pagan. They're just as lost. And so for a Jew in the first century to walk out of Jerusalem down 3,000 feet of elevation, down to where John was, out in the wilderness, and to allow this man and this prophet to baptize them was to say that I need something more than what I already have. I need something else. And that it's not enough to be a, a, a child of Abraham. You might say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, well think to Matthew chapter 4. If you want to write this in your notes, write that down. This will be a great place to, 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 to spend some time cross-referencing. John there in Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, what's he doing? Well, he's baptizing. What do the Pharisees and Sadducees say when they've come out? Because they're part of Jerusalem and Judea. They've come out as well. And what do they say when they see John baptizing that? They scoff. Are you kidding me? Why would you do that? Why would you Jews do that? And John says, are you, are you so foolish? Don't you realize that you, your, your descendant, or your, your, uh, your heritage as a child of Abraham brings you no comfort before God at this moment, that you are just as evil as anyone else? And he says, don't you know that God can raise up seeds. Those stones, he could turn those into seeds of Abraham. He doesn't need you. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to baptism. And what do they say? Never. I'll trust in my heritage. I'll trust in my pride. I'll trust in my self-righteousness. And I'll never subject myself. I'll never lower myself. I'll never humble myself to a place where I need something more, something outside of myself, something that I don't already have. John's calling them to repentance. And they won't do it. And many did, though. But which will you be this morning? Whatever you can point to this morning, each of us have something in our lives that may be viewed by others as redeeming. Will you point to that and say, I don't need to repent. I have this or I have that. One of the saddest things as I read the New Testament is to see the weariness in between the lines that's written on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've got to know that they are a tired people. They're a weary people. They wear masks. They run from the Lord. They, bury, they bear their own burdens. 
And Jesus looks at them and says, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. I'll give you rest for your soul. Are you tired this morning? Are you tired of saying, I'll not submit, I'll not humble myself? So I don't, I don't like to be called a sinner. I don't like to be called to repentance. That's the most gracious thing that I or anybody else can do for you this morning. To, to give this message that John was given. To say, repent. Why? Because he's, Jesus in repentance is saying, take my yoke upon you. Take my righteousness. I'll take your sinfulness. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. This will be, this will be nourishment for you this, this, this week. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. What a beautiful passage. The man that's writing this says, the psalmist says, I sinned. And in my sin, in my arrogance, in my pride, I felt like I was wasting away. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. You say, I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of the guilt that's crushing me. I'm tired of this secret addiction to pornography or lust or gambling or gossip, whatever it is. I'm tired of it and it's crushing me. And the psalmist says, but when I repented of that, when I stopped pretending, and when I took off that outer garment, that falsehood of self-righteousness, and I walked down into that river, and I received the grace of God in repentance, he says, my life, it came back to me. And joy overcame me. And you say, that sounds so good this morning. Well, that, re- that offer is for you this morning. John is calling to you this morning, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Prepare the way of the Lord in your hearts. Receive rest for your souls. As we think about this idea of repentance, I want you to just see something quickly. Both the occasion and the capacity for repentance are from the Lord. The opportunity and the ability to repent are from the Lord. You need to know that. You need to see that this morning. We won't spend tons of time, but you think about any man or any woman in the New Testament that repents. Well, how did they repent? They had the occasion. They were given an opportunity. Why? The message of the gospel came to them. The gospel of repentance. The gospel that said, lay your burdens down. Walk into this water. Receive forgiveness. That was from the Lord. Even you here this morning, you say, well, this is the first time I've ever heard anything like this. Take that as a gift from God. He has provided for you this morning an occasion, an opportunity to do that very thing. But not only is the occasion and the opportunity a gift from God, but also the ability and the capacity to repent are also gifts from God. Throughout the Old Testament, we will get to this in a few weeks, but throughout the Old Testament, we've already been there, by the way. We'll be there again. We see this time and time again that it is God who changes the heart. That God, most clearly seen in the Old Testament, takes this heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Joel all prophesy of this. That God would give his people a new heart. That he would give them the ability to even come to repentance. And so quickly this morning, if you have repented, just stop and look back and realize that the fact that you were able to do that, the opportunity that you were given is a gift from God that you did not deserve nor did you ask for. And not all received the same. You say, I don't believe that. Well, how many people, how many stories of, of the Apostle Paul do we read in the New Testament? How many, re, how many people received that same gift, that occasion, that opportunity that he did? He was knocked off of his horse 
Sense literally knocked in him. Sight taken while sight given. This is a gift of God. So if you've been given that this morning, humbly worship and stand in awe that he would give that to you, unworthy and lower than John, and yet you've been given to me. And what's more, considering 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, just quickly, I have to throw this out there. What do we do in light of the fact that God gives capacity and occasion for us to repent is we ask him, God himself, to grant repentance to others. Timothy uh, is told by the Apostle Paul, he says, pray that God may perhaps grant them repentance that would lead them to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Would that not be our prayer? That we would humbly and in awe that we would receive that repentance that he's given to us, that we would worship him as a result of that, and then that we would take that repentance, that message of repentance, and we would give it away, and that we would fall on our knees and ask that God would use that message to draw others to himself. May that not be said of us this morning. I've got to say this as we draw to a close. John's rite of baptism did not produce forgiveness of sins. John's baptism did not produce forgiveness of sins. John's baptism was an outward confession. It was a sign. It was a humbling, a posture change. It demonstrated something inward that had been, been converted. That repentance and humility was in the life of this person. And so this first century Jew that typically would have trusted in their heritage under the, the, uh, as a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham would walk into that water, leaving that up on the shore. So it was an outward sign that God had done something in them, that he had brought them to a place of repentance. So you say, what about John's baptism? Does it save? No. And what is believer's baptism? We'll talk more about baptism next week, but here's what you need to know about John's baptism. It was, it was after the fact, and it was a demonstration of something that had changed in them, that they had heeded that. And the fact that they would lower themselves to go, go into the river was a demonstration of repentance. It was a demonstration of repentance. So John calls out to those on the, the bank. He says, repent. And they say, I have repented of self-righteousness. And John says, come down into the water then. Show me. Demonstrate your repentance by coming down into this water. And this morning you say, I have repented. I've repented of materialism. And John would call out to you, then give it away. If you've repented of materialism, Hagerstown Church, then why don't we give it away? Why do we hang on to it? Why do we clutch so tightly to it? John says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down. You say, I've repented of of lust, then drive a nail through the top of your computer or your phone and throw it in the trash can. It's better to enter into eternity maimed than to have fast internet speeds or the latest iPhone or most the best computer. Trash it. You say, I've repented of fornication, then call it off. I've repented of unforgiveness, then stop bringing it up. Stop bringing it up and throwing it into the person that accused or attacked you and throwing it in their face. Confess your, your unforgiveness. You say, I've repented of pride, then humble yourself and serve your neighbor. Demonstrate it. 
bring forth fruit of repentance. You say, I've repented of gossip. And stop leaning in with an eager ear. This is what John, this is an application of what John is saying. Let's bear fruit. If there's repentance in our lives, let's demonstrate that. And if there's not, then let's go back to repentance. You see, we stand on the shores of the, of the Jordan River and John calls to us and he says, repent. And there is a bar that we have to lower ourselves to walk under. And as we go, we can't take things with us. A true demonstration of repentance is to leave it all. To humble ourselves and to repent. So the message comes out for you this morning. It says, a new king has conquered your territory. And as he prepares to enter, he sends ahead both heralds and, pre and prepares. And they announce the coming of this king. And they also require the people to prepare the pathway. They're to clean it up. They're to, they're to widen it. They're to make it look beautiful. And all the preparation that they put into that king coming, it translates to that king as submission and humility. In other words, it translates as repentance. So when our hearts begin to change, through the work of God, repentance takes place in our hearts, and the outward sign begins to come out. And so we, we started in this place. Has your heart been prepared for the coming of the Messiah? If it has, then, bear, then, then demonstrate the fruits of repentance. Church, demonstrate the fruits of repentance. And if you say this morning, I've not repented, I've not, I've not turned from my sin, I've, not, I've never even really understood or heard this message, then listen, if you're tired, if you're weary, then why don't, you have nothing to lose, everything to gain. Strip yourself of self-righteousness and the guilty stains that are all over you and walk into that river. Let's pray. Jesus, the fact this morning that we can gather and we can look at these truths and be nourished by them is out of this world, literally. That you would look across this people this morning and say, come to me, you who are filthy, you who are dirty, you who are guilty, you who are lost, you are, who are rebellious, you who are tired, you who are weary, and receive rest. Jesus, you've called out to us and you've said, let me wear your robes of unrighteousness, and you've offered us your robe of righteousness. So we stand on the banks of the Jordan River with a decision to make. And Jesus, I pray that the repentance would be granted to us this morning. And that even this morning, you would change our hearts. And for the teenager that's here this morning, that whose heart is hard towards you, we pray, God, that you would take that heart from them, that you would give them a heart of flesh, a heart that is able to repent of their sins and to walk down into that water and receive forgiveness. And God, for the one that's old, who's walked through life, this isn't their first rodeo, and their garments are filthy through the years of sin and rebellion, God, would you again, would you change their hearts? Would you give them a heart of flesh 
God, for those of us who are running from you this morning, that we would come to our senses and realize that we are tired. And how wonderful it is that you reach your arms out and you say, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus, we hail you as the Messiah this morning, as the Son of God. We worship at your feet, and there we find rest. We make much of you because of that, and we ask these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.